What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Summer is officially here. It feels anything but, though, as the region acclimates to a slow return to business and COVID-19 flares up elsewhere in the country. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top stories in the Times Union. And there was a real sense of betrayal. Brendan Lyons quoted somebody as saying that it was like a punch to the gut. We'll hear about a new lawsuit filed by the family of one of the victims of the 2018 Schoharie limo crash. The lawsuit basically uh, alleges that Mavis didn't do enough repairs to the brakes to make them safe. And we'll get a taste of victory with the locally owned thoroughbred who won this year's Belmont State. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what happened at the Times Union this week. I'm here with Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Perhaps uh, the news that came out this week that has the most uh, national appeal is that Governor Cuomo, along with the governors of several other states, have enacted a 14-day quarantine for individuals from certain states where COVID uh, is raging. What's the latest on that? Well, the latest, and it's it's breaking pretty quickly, you know, we're talking midday on Thursday. This policy was announced on Wednesday morning, and as you noted, it's New Jersey, Connecticut, and New York, three of the states that were hit hardest by what uh, is now increasingly looking at, like, the first spike in the pandemic in the U.S., that is, back in March and April and into May. And now that other states, including a lot of southern states, are experiencing their first really big spikes, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut are essentially saying, hey, you know what? Stay where you are. Because if you're going to come to our states, to the Northeast, we would really, really like it. In fact, we're going to require it that you quarantine yourself for two weeks to make sure that you are not infectious with COVID-19. And that list of states was originally nine, but Washington state fell off after some debate about whether it met the metrics, but it includes you know, Texas, South Carolina, Florida, among the Southern states that have seen a serious uptick in the number of infections over the course of the last couple of days and even over the course of the last couple of weeks. It's, it's quite alarming, needless to say. Sure. Now, how is this enforceable? Is it enforceable? What are what is Cuomo saying about that? There's a little bit of uh, a vagueness uh, there, Jess. Um, the governor has said that you know there will be monitoring, there will be some kind of compliance team that might do, for example, spot checks on people as they pass through points of entry. He has even alluded to the fact that perhaps you could check out of state plates. But of course, it raises all kinds of constitutional questions about 
whether or not it is acceptable or legal, that is, to stop somebody just on the pretext of their having, um, you know, a, a Florida state plate. Now, while this is all happening, at the same time, here in the Capital Region and around New York State, uh, we're moving into the next phases of reopening, but the latest news is that gyms and malls are still going to be closed, and that has produced some outcry. What's the latest with that? Yeah, gyms and malls were expecting and had been expecting for months to be able to open in what's known as stage four of the kind of phased reopening. And the Cuomo administration in calls earlier this week said, yeah, we're, we're going to hold off on that. We're, we have some concerns, for example, over the potential of infection from recirculated air. So uh, there was great upset by those retailers and, of course, the large property owners that own these malls. And gyms as well uh, made the point that they had been working really, really hard to essentially make all the adjustments that they had to to move their equipment so that nobody is uh, closer than six feet, that, you know, putting down tape to make sure people kind of maintain that social distance And there was a real sense of betrayal. Brendan Lyons quoted somebody as saying that it was like a punch to the gut to a lot of these businesses after a period of great fiscal strife. You know, if you if you run a gym, there's no curbside pickup for that kind of exercise. You have to have people on site. And the administration said, well, okay, we look what's happening around around the nation at these other states. This is the kind of thing we want to go slow with. We want to make sure that we're doing it right. So there's nothing that says that you might not be able, malls and gyms, that you might not be able to open up in the next couple of days. But for right now, we're really taking this very slow, very deliberately. Also of note this week, two kind of hyper-local stories. We'll start with one of them. There has been a recent spate of shootings in Albany. Yeah, and really over the course of the last 10 days or so, there's been a a marked, you know, speaking of spikes, a spike in gun violence. Last week was an episode where uh, I believe it was uh, more than a dozen people who were injured in one fell swoop, one very tight period of time. And once again, we're talking Thursday afternoon. Over the course of the last 24 hours, there have been two homicides, both in Albany's South End. One of them, a really gruesome and brazen shooting of a man who had been driving a U-Haul and had apparently been involved in some kind of chase and was shot in the back by by another man. This all happened out in front of the county office building and only about a half a block away from South Station, the police station in the South End that we have been talking about a lot in recent weeks because it's where the first of the really, the protests that really got violent occurred in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. The police have said that they will be bringing in state police. The mayor has said that the state police, as well as the sheriff's office, will be patrolling the scene and that this gun violence has to stop. Uh, We believe that uh, with the work that we are going to be doing, um, we are going to ensure that we are coordinating and focusing our attention on those individuals who are committing this violence and the groups that they are affiliated with. Needless to say, various community uh, interrupter groups that try to stem 
beefs, disputes um, that can turn violent have been working overtime on the street to make sure that that happens. But it's, it's really alarming amid everything else that's alarming that's going on in, in this city. Mm, that's sobering news. Now, the other big story that came out locally is in Albany County, the DA's race. What's happening with the vote count? Is there a winner yet? No, and there probably won't be for at least a week. You know, in the race between um, incumbent Democratic District Attorney David Soares and his challenger, Matt Toporowski, who sort of challenged Soares from the left on primary night, a primary night unlike any that uh, certainly I've ever covered before, Soares came out ahead by about 1,100 votes. Now, that is a healthy, healthy margin in any normal year, but there are still uh, more than 17,000 absentee ballots that are out that need to be counted. That counting, I'm pretty sure, will not begin until the last possible deadline for mailed-in absentee ballots to arrive. If memory serves, I think that's going to be Monday. Essentially, if you dropped your absentee ballot in the mail on Tuesday, they have to allow enough time for it to get to the County Board of Election. Then they have to go through the work of eliminating absentee ballots that were later countermanded by people who showed up in person to vote. So we've got a long wait ahead of us, but at this point at least, you want to be David Soares more than you want to be Matt Toporowski. Thanks so much, Casey. We'll check back in with you next week. Mavis Discount Tires is at the center of a new lawsuit filed this week by the family of one of the victims of the 2018 Schoharie limo crash. The tire chain's auto shop in Saratoga Springs had done work on the brakes of the 2001 Ford Excursion limo that crashed nearly two years ago, killing 20 people. The lawsuit alleges that Mavis was complicit in allowing the, quote, death trap on the road, despite its need for massive brake repairs. Business reporter Larry Rulison has been following the aftermath of the limo crash since it happened. He broke the news that the limo had failed inspections. I talked to him this week after he wrote about the newest lawsuit. In Saratoga Springs, the Mavis Tire, what role did it play? Naman Hussein, who ran Prestige Limousine, he kept his limo in Saratoga Springs. And so he would always bring it there for any of the work he needed done now. I speculated like maybe he had a friend there or knew the guy or maybe just had a relationship or not. It's very unusual because Mavis actually doesn't have a lift in that garage to actually lift up a limo that size because it's 34 foot limos probably one of the bigger limos the it's a 2001 ford excursion uh stretch limousine was involved in the accident so it's very unusual very peculiar but he'd been servicing it there for years and the state department of transportation years before the accident actually spotted the limo at that mavis and it caused a red flag because it had the incorrect plates and it turned out to be registered illegally. And so a, a DOT inspector first saw the crash limo in the summer of 2017, a, a year and a half before the, accident, the crash. So it's been on the radar of the state for a while, even before the accident. So there's always been this connection between Mavis and the limo company because that's where all the, the work was done. Essentially, the, the state police fault, you know, Naman Hussain for 
not getting it fixed and keeping it serviced and keeping it safe. But um, this new lawsuit, which other lawsuits have blamed Mavis as well, but this is the most detail of how they, the lawsuit basically uh, alleges that Mavis didn't do enough repairs to the brakes to make them safe and didn't tell Nauman Hussein he shouldn't drive it. Could that potentially absolve him in some of the other? Yeah, so the interesting thing about this this suit and this line is that could give Nauman Hussein a lot of leverage or in his criminal case. The defense, his defense could say, hey, it's Mavis's fault. The worst thing that Mavis probably did was uh, gave the limo an inspection sticker, which it was a DMV inspection sticker, and, and stretch limos aren't supposed to get DMV. They get their inspection stickers. They're basically the same inspection stickers that a school bus gets. In the State Department of Transportation is the only one that can issue that, and they're, they're very stringent inspections. So they're designed to treat a, a limo that size like a school bus. It's got all these passengers. In the defense, in the criminal case, for Dominic Saint has focused on Mavis. There's no trial date set right now because of the coronavirus pandemic has closed the courts and there's, there's no, we don't know when the trial would happen. But if this were to go to trial, this idea that Mavis is responsible, not now I'm going to say. That's a game changer. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you wrote in your article that I found particularly interesting was the recounting of how the driver was afraid and some of the other drivers were afraid to drive it because they knew about brake issues. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So Nauman Hussein bought this gigantic limo in in 2016 from an Albany, a limousine company. And um, the limo had failed its DOT inspection, the bus inspection. And so the owner said, I don't want to, it's going to cost me too much to get this back on the road. And Hussein bought it, knowing, being told like it wasn't going to pass inspection. And Nam Hussein started using it for jobs, taking people around, even though he had no, he, he, it was illegal for him to do that. But from the start, there was brake problems and the drivers were terrified to drive that particular limo. The company, Nam Hussein, had other limos that were also pretty bad, but uh, this one was the worst. And so they would report that they would put the brake pedal down to the floor and it still wouldn't stop. The back brakes were not working ever properly since he bought it, basically. And that puts a lot of pressure on the front brakes. And so you can stop the vehicle with your front brakes. On the day of the crash, the driver of the excursion was driving. He was supposed to be driving to Cooperstown from Amsterdam. He somehow ended up in Schaharie. But this on Route 30, there's a gigantic, very steep hill from Route 7 down to Route 30A, right where the um, Apple Barrel Country Store is where the, the crash occurred. And the driver pulled over, just like other drivers, very hesitant, very worried about driving down a big hill in that limo. So it was known that people hated to drive that thing. And I had heard that there's a lot of exhaust um, that would seep through the, the floorboards. And it was just in terrible shape. A lot of some of the drivers, other drivers that they employed refused to drive it. But uh, this particular driver who ended up dying in the crash also, he took the job. But I think he had second thoughts right before the crash. This is a very 
complicated, complex case, obviously, and you've been covering it since the very beginning, right? Yeah, I sort of covered it from the business angle, being a business reporter, and that helped. That's how I ended up getting all the uh, motor vehicle records from the federal and the state. Through searching for the business, I was able to get these documents, and that really helped. We broke a lot of news on the failed inspections right from the start. So a lot of times looking at it through the lens of a, of a business reporter can be beneficial versus, say, criminal because a lot of the stuff that happens is all regulated by the state. And I'm used to finding documents, government documents related to business regulation. That's interesting. That's like, isn't that how they took down Al Capone? Yeah, yeah. Like there's taxes. Yeah. <laughs> There's all these business records in the courts and on government websites. Sometimes, you know, these ones I had, people gave them to me. I got very, I got lucky breaks. No, you're a good reporter. That's a really interesting, you know, story about coming in and covering a story that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, immediately jump to a business angle. They normally throw the cops reporter on the story. So I ended up driving up to the hotel, the motel that morning talking to the manager, you know, it was just sometimes stories becoming a different angle. Uh, you can get insights you might've missed through another angle. So, but it is a business angle. I mean, it's the regulation of limousines. Wow. So this story, you know, has a long way to go before we see it kind of run its course. What, from your perspective, having covered it from the beginning, do you have any kind of predictions or sense of how it's going to pan out? You know, these civil cases were brought because the insurance coverage by the Hussein family on this limousine was only $500,000 split 20 times. It's $25,000 per person, per family. And so they're seeking, you know, millions of dollars, I'm sure, in restitution and uh, pain and suffering. Those cases are very difficult to win. You know, Mavis is, has the most deep pockets here. They're owned by like a big private equity fund and um, they're probably worth billions of dollars. And they have the capital you could get. But the Hussein family, I mean, the dad is living in Pakistan. The dad never even had a bank account in his entire life. And, you know, the dad's been this FBI informant and, and operated these businesses on the side just to get by. He's got no assets. So in the criminal case, there's been rumors that there would be a plea deal for Nawan Hussein so he could avoid jail. But... I find that very hard to believe that the prosecutors in the case would allow him to go without any jail time at all. But there's no trial set yet, so we're sort of in a limbo. The lawyers in the criminal case are meeting with the judge next month to discuss next steps. So that's sort of where, where things stand. The civil cases will take years, I'm sure. And there's also a civil case against the state, which is almost entirely impossible to prove that the state had culpability, although the lawyers for Naman Hussein blame the state. And they say the road, that steep road down Route 30 was to blame. The road design was to blame. They'll blame the driver had THC, the chemical compound of marijuana in his system at the time of the, the crash. There's a lot of blame being thrown around. It's a complicated situation, but you will be there to cover it until the bitter end, right? I hate to say it's become like an obsession of mine, but I, I covered every bit of it since it started. I've been in the court when it's been open. So, you know, I feel, I also sort of feel this obligation to the families to, because we've discovered a lot of stuff for them. 
to keep digging and um, you know get as much information as we can to them because you know they're the ones that suffered besides the victims the most truly well thank you so much for talking to me about this journey it's not just one story it's more like a journey that you've taken yeah yeah i think i've probably written at least 100 stories so far wow wow well we'll look out for more thanks sure sure jessica after the break tis the law and the belmont stakes winners triple crown odds they're off If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Last week saw the 152nd running of the Belmont Stakes. It's usually the third leg of the prestigious Triple Crown, but not this year. This year, it was the first leg, and the horse owned by a Saratoga stable named Tis the Law was the favorite going in. And he was the horse who won it by more than three lengths. Because of COVID-19 concerns, the New York Racing Association decided that owners could not be at the Belmont track for the race. So Tis the Law's people gathered in Saratoga Springs, where Times Union horse racing writer Tim Wilkin joined them to watch. And I had my option to either go to Belmont or go to Saratoga. There were only 15 media members invited to cover the Belmont. There were only 14 there because I didn't go because we opted to stay in Saratoga and watch the race with Jack Knowlton and half of his uh, other 34 partners in the horse, which we thought was the the right thing to do because he's our guy. He's our local guy. And that was the story. So up to Pinnell's restaurant in Saratoga Springs, I went on Saturday. Tim got there a few hours before post time. Tis the law's owners gathered under a tent outside Pinnell's restaurant in front of a large flat screen television. It was like a little bit of a party. It was subdued, quiet. I talked to some of the partners in the hours leading up to the race, and they were nervous. Tim also spoke to Sacatoga Stables operating manager Jack Knowlton several days before the race during a Times Union Live broadcast. You know, this isn't your first rodeo in the Triple Crown. Everyone remembers 2003, the ride that Funny Side took you on. You guys became like cult heroes in the sport during that Triple Crown run. What's it like being back on this national stage? Well, it's obviously a lot of fun. Not anything that you ever expected. Figure lightning striking once is uh, about all anybody can expect. But we've got you know, a tremendous horse and one that we hope uh, will take us a long way. Flash forward to Saturday evening in the tent outside Pinnell's in Saratoga. As the race began, you could hear a pin drop. But as Tis the Law made his move around the turn, heading into the stretch, and he got the lead, the place just exploded in sound. I mean, it was a pretty cool thing to see, watching the reactions of all these people, because, you know, you know, and you got to realize, too, that people that 
that play at the highest level of thoroughbred racing usually have millions and millions of dollars to spend on horses. They spent $110,000 on Tis the Law, New York bred, between 35 partners. So it wasn't ultra expensive to get into this. And these people aren't rich, trust me. They're not, uh, they're not driving Mercedes and Lamborghinis and DeLoreans and, and things like that. But they are down-to-earth, regular people. And it was just sort of refreshing to see these people get a chance like this. With one leg of the Triple Crown down, the comparisons to Tis the Law's Sakatoga predecessor, Funny Side, are inevitable. Well, I'm not sure that uh, you're ever going to be able to have the popularity that Funny Side had. It was uh, a time when people were really looking for, for heroes and, and supporting underdogs. And, uh, you know, the story of five guys from high school putting $5,000 a piece in and getting, uh, you know, a horse. Uh, that rang uh, with people. They thought that was pretty neat. And then just happened to be cheap and rented a school bus instead of finding some other way to get to uh, Churchill Downs. And But this horse is popular. And, uh, I mean, I get, you know, a lot of emails. Uh, he's got his own website you know, on, on social media, which there was no social media back in the days of Funny Side. I mean, he is all over social media. There's a lot of people that are really uh, very into uh, to Tiz, so. Hold on. Did you all catch that thing about the yellow school bus? Let's hear more about that school bus. And when Funny Side won the, won the Derby in 2003, they traveled around to Churchill Downs in a yellow school bus. One of the partners who's not here with us anymore. A guy named Dave Mann went up to the coach services down there and says, how much is it going to cost to get us a nice cost limousine to drive to Churchill? And he, they said it was like, oh, maybe $3,500. They said, you got anything cheaper than that? They said, we can get you a yellow school bus for 1300 So that sealed the deal. And they, you know, they drove around in, in, in a yellow school bus. And I remember that, uh, they were saying that when they had the trip to the Derby in front of the Galt House, the big hotel in Louisville, there were all these stretch limo buses waiting to take other owners there. And then there was a yellow school bus in line with them. And like Jack was saying, they were all hoping that the other buses would leave before they came out and got on theirs. So they didn't, no one knew who the heck they were. It really became a in vogue thing that, you know, they took the yellow school bus to Baltimore for the Preakness. They had the yellow school, then it was school buses when they were in Belmont. And it became sort of a signature story that everybody picked up on the yellow school bus taking the Sacatogas to the, to the triple crown races. The school bus became a pop culture thing back then where people just, you know, they saw the yellow school bus and they said, are those the funny side guys? Back to the main point here with Tis the Law's Belmont win. The Triple Crown hopes just got real. This horse isn't going to sneak up on anybody because he's got talent. He's right now the best three-year-old in training. And if he stays together, you know, if he stays healthy and sound, the goal is to go Travers then the Kentucky Derby in September, the Preakness, which would be the final leg of the Triple Crown in October, and then the Breeders' Cup. And that's a long time to keep a horse sound, you know, from the Triple Crown Usually is a five-week process if, if it was a regular schedule. This week, this year, it's 15 weeks. That's a long time to keep a horse at the top of his game. 
but they've done it so far. For some reason, if tis the law, you know, we're all keeping our fingers crossed here for the local horse, but if tis the law ends up winning the Triple Crown, I mean, that would go down in the history books as being something, you know, more impressive than maybe previous Triple Crowns, right? Because you're because of this duration, this this length of time. I think it would, but there's a lot of people saying, well, if he wins a Triple Crown, there should be an asterisk by it. Because first of all, the Belmont Stakes wasn't the traditional mile and a half. It was a mile and an eighth. But, you know, like I said before, Jessica, it's a lot tougher to keep these horses sound for that long. And he's going to face more challenges because you're going to get fresh horses that we don't even haven't even seen yet running in any of these races that are going to pop up. But right now, it is the law. He's dictating the law right now in thoroughbred racing. There's no doubt about that. No doubt. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. Stay cool out there.